Okay, we're going to start off today with some corporate confession. And everyone says, yay. Uh, who among us would consider themselves to be a procrastinator? Raise the hands. Ah, I thought so. Yeah, procrastinators unite, right? Tomorrow, yeah? I, I am very much a proactive, plan-ahead person now in my adult life. But as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult, I could procrastinate with the best of them. Uh, and I want to tell you a little story about my procrastinating days. When I was in college, uh, I was a music major, and it was a part of my coursework. Uh, as a part of my coursework, I was required to take three semesters of music history. Music history one, music history two, music history three. And one of my closest friends, Rachel, was in these classes with me. I feel that that's important to mention. Um, for each of these classes, it was stated at the beginning of the semester, at the outset, that we would have a really big research paper due at the end of the semester, and that it would be worth a large amount of our final grade. So we knew this from the start, from day one, and we knew that we needed to make choices to prepare for that deadline well. Well, the day before this paper was due in Music History One, my friend Rachel and I had not even started our papers. And we looked at each other and we were like, oh, what did we do? We are in trouble. We are in for a long night. And so we gathered up the books and the sources that we needed to be able to write these individual papers. And uh, we camped out in my parents' living room the entire night. I'm sure they loved that. Uh, pulled an all-nighter and wrote our papers and handed them in. I don't remember what they were about, but they couldn't have been very good. Um, in the middle of the night, you know, around that 4 a.m. hour, for anyone who's ever pulled an all-nighter doing a school assignment, this utter hopelessness began to set in, and I remember feeling absolutely exhausted, sick to my stomach and, and pretty desperate. Um, and I remember Rachel and I making a promise to each other. We made a pact. We're never going to do this again. Next time, we're going to prepare well, and we're not going to do this just the night before. So fast forward to next semester, music history two. There we were the day before our paper was due at the end of the semester, and neither of us had started our papers again. So we gathered our materials, and we camped out in my parents' living room again for the night, and we wrote our papers. And this time, it was kind of between that, that dreadful hour of 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., we would take turns just crying out in agony, expressing how frustrated we were and saying things like, this wasn't fair and how could this happen to us? Why do things like this always happen to us? Until the other person would kindly remind us that it was completely our fault and that we had no one to blame except ourselves for this. Um, and the chaos that we were feeling in our minds and bodies was a result of our own choices. <laughs> so we finished our papers and we turned them in for our final grades. Then Music History 3, third time's the charm, right? I'm really, really ashamed to admit to you that it wasn't. There, Allie and Rachel were pulling another all-nighter to write another paper the night before it was due, and this time, we were just as tired and just as exhausted and just as hopeless, but we were fully aware of the shamefulness of our repeated irresponsibility, so we didn't talk. We just sat in silence, and we typed away at our papers, and we handed them in the next day with red eyes, angry stomachs, and the scent of procrastination reeking from our pores. 
we passed, and it is a true marvel that I do know anything about music history today, I will say that. Uh, and you'd be happy to know that both Rachel and I have grown into being people who know how to be proactive in our lives, and we don't live that way anymore. But at the time, we were caught in a cycle of poor choices that led to some chaos in our lives. Unnecessary chaos, right? Chaos that really could have been avoided if we had followed the guidelines that were set for us, if we had developed some healthy habits and made some healthy choices along the way. I tell you that today because the Israelites in the Old Testament knew a little something about being caught in a cycle of poor choices. And we're going to read about that today. Our scripture, scripture passage for today is found in Judges chapter 4. And be warned... This, uh, this is not a rainbows and unicorn type of feel-good story. Um, it's, it's violent and graphic and hard to read, okay? <laughs> Excited? Stick with me. Judges chapter 4, we're going to read the whole chapter. And just as a side note, Judges chapter 5 is the same story. It's just written in a different literary style. So in chapter 4, it's written in the literary style of prose. And in chapter 5, it's written in the literary style of poetry. So it's the same story, and they help paint a picture of the story together. But I'm not going to read chapter 5 today, just chapter 4. <clears throat> After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There, I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. At Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. Now Haber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harosheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera. For the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Harosheth Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. 
Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, because Haber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazer. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if there is anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. Right? When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come, and I will show you the man you are looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. Oof, the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God, we say, right? I'm going to talk less today about how this specific story plays out, but I wanted you to hear it. But instead, I'm going to zoom out a little bit and look at this story within the context of the entire book of Judges. We, we began this year-long series together in January called The Story, where we are together walking through the Bible throughout this entire year. And of course, we can't cover every verse from every chapter of the Bible in just 52 weeks together, but we are trying to hit some of the significant points along the story arc so that we can get a sense of that arc throughout Scripture and, and what is revealed about God's character and what is revealed about the call to the people of God. So here we are, arriving in Judges at this story. And I'm going to be honest with you, I have a hard time reading the book of Judges This was a hard sermon for me to prepare. The Lord was doing a lot of work on me um, as I was preparing to preach today. The book of Judges is incredibly violent and graphic, and it's it's chaotic, and and it's kind of full of stories that we would expect to see in like action thriller movies, you know? Not no shade to action thriller movies, but I just say that to paint a picture of, of just what's going on there. It's hard to read and it's hard to ponder. It's not cushy and feel good. But we can't just gloss over the parts of scripture that are uncomfortable to us, right? Because I think there's something that we can learn about the character of God in the book of Judges. I think there's something that we can learn about ourselves in the book of Judges, and I think there's something that we can learn about the people of God. So let's dig in together. The book of Judges is concerned with covenant faithfulness, or oftentimes with the lack of it. The book of Judges really plays out a lot like a cautionary tale, warning the people of God, this is what happens when you continue to fall into covenantal unfaithfulness. The writer of Judges makes it clear that the Israelites are caught in a very specific kind of cycle over and over again. And, and this isn't just in the book of Judges, right? This happens throughout um, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and really throughout much of Scripture. And I I think it's important for us, if we see this pattern and this cycle play out so often, I think it's important for us as the people of God to take a look at it, to take a look at the cycle and ask the questions, are we caught in anything like this? Are we caught in a cycle like this? Are we doing anything to perpetuate a similar cycle? And can 
this cycle be interrupted or even broken. So that's what we're going to talk about today. This story in Judges chapter 4 is just one example of one time through this cycle that's repeated over and over again. So what, what is the cycle? What does this cycle look like that the people of God are caught in over and over again? Well, in the book of Judges, this particular cycle plays out almost exactly like this many times. The Israelites do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, starts out like that. As a response, the Lord turns them over to a certain power of the day. They suffer at the hands of that power. They get desperate and they cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up someone to help them in the book of Judges. It's, it's judges. And these, these judges don't think like courtroom officials. That's not really what these judges are. They're more like military leaders and sometimes prophets that would help the people of God make next steps. Okay, so God will raise up a judge, a prophet, a helper, a king to help the people of God. They are rescued from their suffering one way or another. And then there's this line each time. And then there was peace in the land for X amount of years before the Israelites start the cycle right again. <laughs> the, the, they're right, uh, there's peace in the land for a number of years, and then right after that we read, the Israelites do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord turns them over to a certain power. They suffer at the hands of that power. They cry out to the Lord for help. God raises up a judge, a prophet, a helper. They are rescued from their suffering. There's peace in the land for a certain number of years. Exhale with me. <sighs> Then the Israelites do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord turns them over to a power. They suffer under the power. They cry out to God. God raises up a helper. They're rescued and there's peace in the land for a certain number of years. And then, I'm not going to do it again, but it happens over and over and over again. It's exhausting to read. The cycle is naggingly perpetual and it, and it almost always leads to some kind of chaos or violence along the way before God intervenes and brings peace. I believe the writer of Judges is trying to communicate something about the character of God in the way that the book is written with this cycle happening over and over again. And I believe the writer is also telling us something important about the proclivities and the habits of the people of God. Because each time that we read about the people of God stepping outside of the bounds of this covenantal faithfulness with God, there's chaos and violence and stress and pain and heartache, and then God intervenes and there's what? Peace. Say that with me. Peace. Sin. Chaos. Repentance. Deliverance. Peace. Repeat. One thing we can observe from the book of Judges is that there seems to be this cause and effect relationship almost between the Israelites doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord and utter chaos taking place. Israel's living in sin and obedience, sin and disobedience and covenantal unfaithfulness, and then chaos ensues. Now, before we go on, I do want to make one thing very clear, and I hope you hear me. I want to tell you what I hope you do not hear from me today. I was very careful about this in my preparation. I hope you do not hear me saying that our sin and disobedience is the reason for all chaos in our lives. There are some forms of chaos that are completely beyond our control, right? A fatal medical diagnosis or a tragic death, a natural disaster, the loss of a job, the oppression of a person or a people group, Sometimes things that cause chaos in our lives are directly connected to our actions, and sometimes they're just not. 
They aren't always punishment for our actions or restitution for our crimes, right? Sometimes they're linked to someone else's actions. Or sometimes they are just painful mysteries. Sometimes life lived in a creation that has not yet been fully redeemed and made new is just hard and painful, chaotic things happen. So when I talk about this cause and effect relationship between sin and chaos, I want you to remember that I said this first, that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of scenario. Not all chaos is necessarily linked to our sinful actions. Are we okay there? Give me a thumbs up if you're with me. Today, though, we are going to focus on some of the chaos that is brought about or can be brought about by our actions and how God interacts with that. So I have, I have three observations that I'd like to share with you this morning based off of this cycle that plays out in Judges that the Israelites are caught in throughout the whole book. Observation number one, God brings peace to chaos. I find it really significant that each time the Israelites have kind of gone rogue, decided they don't like what happens when they go rogue and they cry out to God for help, when God intervenes, there is peace the cycle the Israelites are in ends several, time with, several times with this phrase. And there was peace in the land for X amount of years. 20 years, 40 years, 80 years. In the case of this story, it was 40 years. I want to suggest this morning that God is not a God of chaos. God is the God of peace. And th this is not an original thought from me, of course, right? Paul reminds us of this in his letter to the Corinthians about worship in 1 Corinthians. He said, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Or in the creation account in Genesis, in the beginning, the earth is formless, is a formless void, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaotic waters of the deep. And what happens? God speaks order in creation into to existence, dividing light and dark, creating sea and sky, air, sun, moon, stars, animals, people. There's an ordered nature in creation and the way it works together. God brings peace to a formless chaos. Or there's this great story in the Gospels where Jesus and his disciples are on a boat in the middle of a crazy storm. And Jesus is sleeping. I love that. Jesus is asleep, but the disciples are getting pretty squirrely over this storm. And they approach Jesus for help. And in Mark 4, 39, it says this. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Jesus brings peace to the winds and the chaos of fear. And in the New Testament, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians that there's evidence of a life filled with God's spirit, that evidence of the character of God in us, the spirit of, of God in us is this, Galatians 5, and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. In other words... The fruit that comes from a life rooted in God's spirit produces peace and right relationship with God and others. These are, just, these are just a few of many examples throughout scripture of peace being a hallmark characteristic of God. So maybe it's wise for us to consider the possibility that when there is chaos in our lives, chaos in the world, Maybe that chaos shouldn't necessarily be attributed to God's action, but 
perhaps the action of God is found where peace breaks into the chaos and reorders it. Just as God did in the book of Judges over and over again. And, and that perhaps then, as the people of God, we too should be found breaking into the chaos of this world in peace. And certainly living in a way that avoids causing more unnecessary chaos. Which brings me to my second observation. Observation number two. You're not going to like this. I don't like this. We make choices. How we use